hello, and welcome to Genderator. I'm your host, Jennifer San Filippo. As I close out season three, my special COVID edition, I can't help but reflect on what an amazing experience hosting Genderator has been. I've had the honor of interviewing incredible people, authors, researchers, thought leaders, and educators, all experts in their fields contributing thoughtful, rich perspectives on different aspects of inclusion. My goal has always been to present thought-provoking material to encourage dialogue among you, my listeners. I am grateful to you for sharing your time with me as I pursued this podcast project. For this last episode of Season 3, I have a powerhouse of a guest for you. Akuna Cook is an accomplished diplomat, policy advocate, and attorney. As the founder and principal consultant at Drake Road Strategies, she advises individuals and organizations on public policy strategy and advocacy. Previously, Akuna served as the founding executive director of the Black Economic Alliance, a nonpartisan organization focused on driving economic progress in the black community through policy development, advocacy, and supporting candidates for office. Akuna also practiced law at Covington and Burling, LLP, where she advised former Attorney General Eric Holder on all aspects of his role as chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Before practicing law, Ms. Cook served for almost 10 years as a career diplomat with the Department of State, where she focused on economic and political development. Akuna served overseas in China, South Africa, and Iraq, where she advised U.S. companies on trade, investment, and political risk. In Washington, Akuna served as Special Assistant to the Deputy Secretary of State responsible for African affairs, multilateral engagement, management, and legal issues. Akuna received her law degree from the Yale Law School and a master's degree in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She is also a summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Howard University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in economics and business administration. Akuna is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a member of the Washington, D.C. Bar. Now, I'm delighted to present to you my conversation with Akuna. Akuna Cook, welcome to Genderator. Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, thanks for having me. You've had quite an incredibly rich and interesting career. You are a thought leader and an expert on economic policies as they relate to the advancement of communities of color. And you clearly have an entrepreneurial spirit. What drives you? Uh, you know, Jennifer, it's interesting. We're having this conversation in the middle of this pandemic that has really just laid bare so many of the disparities um, that exist in our society. And I have been doing work focused on um, marginalized communities for much of my career, um, one of the foreign policy contexts, looking at countries, you know, developing countries and how we can better support their development. And then in the last couple of years, turning to um, domestic politics and our domestic economy. And what's really driven me through much of my academic career and then my professional career has really just been a sense that I wanted to contribute to making the world more equal and equitable. Um, Now that I'm a mom, I feel that much more acutely so that the, you know, injustices that I see here in the United States and around the world and how it's impacting our planet and what we will leave behind for our children. I think about that a lot, my own family and 
my own kids in, in the world that's going to be left for them. And so a lot of what drives me is really just making sure that I'm contributing to the best of my ability, that, you know, the talents, gifts, and opportunities that I've had to make the world a little bit better for them and, um, and for everyone else around me. This pandemic has really injected a sense of urgency into what what you're talking about and what drives you, I imagine, when we think of our kids and what we're leaving for them. And right now, the devastation that we are all standing in the middle of. As the founder and principal consultant at Drake Road Strategies, how has your work life changed since the pandemic hit? I mean, I, I'm thinking your phone must be ringing off the hook. Yeah, I mean, my like everyone else, my life has changed a lot during the pandemic because like most parents, I've uh, taken on the responsibility of homeschooling my two children who are um, uh, in high school and middle school, as well as the kind because of the kind of work that I do, there's more urgency around it. And so I would never compare myself to frontline health care workers or folks like that who are out there literally putting their lives on the line. I'm, I'm quite privileged to be able to do a lot of the work I do from home. But I, like a lot of Americans, are feeling the impact of how COVID-19 is upending our lives. I I feel busier. I am busier than, than I was before. And so although I, I know that I'm very fortunate, I still feel the, the effects of this. Um, in terms of my work, I do two primary things. So one, I'm a senior fellow at Central Think Tank, Third Way, um, in Washington, D.C., and we've been focused a lot on how COVID-19 is impacting the economy and our politics um, and really thinking about how to make sure that Democrats win the elections up and down the ballot in November so that we can have uh, better policies. Um, I also do some advisory work for a number of clients who are also focused on building power for communities of color, either as individuals or um, as in a collective. And so a lot of it is looking at what, how does this pandemic and what it's revealing, how do we think about immediate policy responses, but also how do we think about what we do long term to make sure that we are addressing the systemic and structural inequalities in our society so that we can come out of the other side of this um, better than we were. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are some of the policies that you have been discussing? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. There are a number of things. So let's just begin with access to broadband, right? So as this pandemic began and we started, you know, schools closed, restaurants and businesses closed, so much of work moved online, school moved online. And then we started to see that there were disparities in who has access to even just basic broadband internet, who has access, you know, which children have access to laptops, mm -hmm. able to even be able to participate in online schooling, right? And so how do we begin to think about infrastructure rebuilding so that we're getting broadband into rural communities or into poor urban areas even where folks may have broadband but they don't have laptops and they don't have access to internet because they you know lack those resources 
But the other thing in terms of just technology is we knew before the pandemic that communities of color, and particularly workers of color, are over-indexed in low-paying jobs that and have been underrepresented in high-technology, higher-paying jobs, right? Mm-hmm. So a big part of what we have to reimagine is upskilling communities of color, upskilling our workers so that they can now participate in a much more digitized economy. Doing the kinds of ongoing training and really making that a key piece of work that all workers have access to um, ongoing training because the technology does move so quickly. And if we're going to continue to be competitive here in the United States, but even just globally, that we need our workers of all backgrounds because it can't mm-hmm. just be it can't just be white workers or even just a few white workers who have access to technology and disability. Our entire workforce, and particularly those who come from communities of color and, and are underrepresented as is, we really need to make sure that they have those skills and that they are ready to compete on a global scale. And then also just making their lives better here uh, as they get better paying jobs, uh, upskilled for and for the jobs that are in demand. Another area where there's been a lot of focus is on things like paid sick leave and healthcare, right? So we started to see as the pandemic was unfolding that the gaps that we have in so many states that refuse to pass uh, Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act these are a lot of the same states where you're seeing disproportionate number of citizens, often people of color, that are getting sick and that are unable to access care. And those underlying conditions have worsened their responses to COVID-19. And so how do we ensure that our medical and healthcare infrastructure, that we're addressing the racial disparities even within that? to make sure that the next pandemic, the next disaster, isn't continuing to hit communities of color disproportionately. And so those are a couple, just a few areas. You know, there are other sort of long-term structural things that we we are talking about to ensure that we are rethinking the the contract that workers have with their employers Mm -hmm. to make sure that benefits are portable so that you don't have to rely on having one particular job to have health care, that mm-hmm. your health care follows you from job to job, and it doesn't, you can be unemployed and still have access to health care um, and still a, have access to other benefits. And so there are the policies like that. That's a very interesting policy suggestion. I'd never heard that before, but it makes sense because, again, our, our, a lot of our frontline workers just don't have the health care they they would need if they got sick or, you know, if they need to prevent getting sick. And exactly. th- we're seeing a lot of the after effects right now of what that looks like. Are you getting any traction with that type of health care policy? Yeah. So, um, you know, what we're seeing is a lot of the campaigns and certainly the Biden campaign, um, but a lot of folks who are running up and down the ballot this pandemic has really brought to light how urgent it is that we continue to build on the Affordable Care Act and that we continue to close the gaps so that everybody has access to health care and that certainly treatments for COVID-19 
should be covered for everybody and that, you know, anybody, you know, you shouldn't have to have a high paying job to have access to quality health care, including preventative services, right? Like if you, no matter what kind of job you have, you should be able to take the time off that you need when you get sick. Those are things that should already exist. And I think that now that we are seeing just how critical it is and how important it is to have policies like that, I think you're starting to see a lot of certainly policy voices, but also political voices Mm -hmm. um, agree and, and push for those kinds of policies. You know, I was listening to Rachel Cargill. I don't know if you know who she is. She, I think it was Rachel Cargill who said that the friends that she has in healthcare said, you know, we don't really need to be called heroes. What what we need is livable wage and to have the confidence that to know that when we go to work, our children are pro- are properly being cared for because we have access to affordable, decent childcare for our kids. Yes, I appreciate being lauded for going into the hospitals, into the nursing homes, and taking care of people. But the best way to show that support and, and uh, appreciation is through a livable wage, proper child care. It's 100% true. Um, in fact, my mom is a nurse, and she was on the front lines in the beginning of this pandemic, and she actually contracted COVID-19. And um, you know, was terribly ill for quite a while, and it was a really scary time for our families. And one of the things that she reflected on is, you know, in those early days, like they did not have the equipment that they really needed. You know, those frontline workers, even just putting aside the fact that those workers are not getting, you know, the kind of pay and support that they needed beforehand, mm-hmm. they just didn't even simply have the equipment, and they didn't have adequate testing. And those are things that persist today. And so mm-hmm. I think she's 100% right there. These ongoing structural things, um, you know, access to child care, right? So mm-hmm. we're asking a lot of these frontline workers to work way more than they ever had. And when they're at work, they're not, you know, there's no school. So who's mm-hmm. taking care of their kids? Right. A lot of daycare places are closed yes. um, right now. And so, and so these are things that we as a society really just have an opportunity to take a look at and, and fix. One of the things that I heard recently that struck me is that in the 2060, so 40 years from now, one out of two Americans is going to be a person of color, mm-hmm. right, uh, either black or Hispanic. And so those are, you know, kids, those, those are people who are children right now, so five, you know, five-year-olds, and in 40 years or so, they're going to be uh, half the country, and so we need to be making investments now to make sure that those kids, you know, that they have been properly prepared to contribute to our society because they are going to be the ones who are in charge, and they're the ones who are going to be our workforce, mm-hmm. and if we're not taking the steps that we need to um, take right now to make sure that they have the best shot at, you know, being healthy and being prosperous, then we as a country are really just failing. You've brought that full circle beautifully, starting with children in schools not having access to the technology while home during this pandemic to stay 
at the level they need to be academically with their peers who do have the access. And as they mm-hmm. and having proper care while their parents are at work, their parents making a livable wage to be able to provide for their family's health care and to ease that stress of worry while they are working so hard. Coming all the way around in the future, these are the children. These are going to be the people who are the leaders and making decisions and populating our, our workforce. What are we doing for them? And those conversations right. and that progress to make that a, a, a healthy circle for everybody needs to start now. What about economic policies to support minority businesses, small businesses, entrepreneurial endeavors? Yeah, Jennifer, that's a fantastic question. It's a real area of need. As uh, many of your listeners will know, Congress passed a Paycheck Protection Program, um, which to date is over $600 billion. It's supposed to go to businesses. Um, to help make sure that they are keeping their workers on deck. And what we found is that a lot of the minority businesses, so businesses owned by Blacks and Hispanic business owners, were not able to access those funds. And in fact, there's estimates that about 90% or more of those businesses will never see payments from that program. And so... You're seeing businesses around the country, small businesses, which are the lifeblood, really, of our economy, but certainly in the economies of those communities that are never coming back. And, um, you know, a lot of your favorite restaurants that are closing, a lot of your favorite services that are, you know, never, you know, not going to be coming back um, because they just didn't have the same access to funding to stay open. And that has real economic consequences for those workers and for their communities. Um, And so a big part of what we need to be thinking about is how we support our small businesses, make sure that they have access to capital and funding to um, reopen, to sustain themselves, um, but also that they have other support that they need from the federal and state governments so that more uh, entrepreneurs who are looking to start a business, have the access to capital, access to the networks that they need Mm -hmm. to um, start and run a successful business. Do you have ideas about where the failure is for access to services lies? Like, is it the financial industry? Is it bridge loans? Is it other supports? Right. So, a lot of what happened in the in the early days of the of the loan program was the banks themselves were requiring that you have a previous relationship with them for them to provide loans through the, the program. Mm-hmm. And a lot of businesses, particularly small businesses that are owned by minorities, they don't have those pre-existing um, relationships with big banks. They raise their money, either they're sort of bootstrapping it out of their own funds or with their community members. And so... They just didn't have those relationships. A lot of the solution lies in uh, making sure that we're increasing the funding that's going to community development financial institutions, which tend to be more focused on lending to minority business owners, making sure that that there's a set-aside pool of funding focused on them. 
so that it's easier for minority entrepreneurs and business people to access those funds. The other part of it is making sure that we are being creative in terms of where the source of the funding um, is coming from and so that those requirements to be eligible to participate in the program, the institutions that are able to participate in the program, that we design the programs going forward with the lens of being tuned to the needs of minority business owners. Mm Some of those businesses really are the heart and soul of some of the communities we're talking about that are being devastated. What are some of the obstacles you are seeing to progress? Yeah, I mean, I think the main obstacle is there just doesn't seem to be the same level of urgency across party lines. And and it's sad to say, but so many of these issues, when I look at them, really should not be partisan. I think that anyone who is an American and a patriot should be concerned with the welfare of all Americans because we live in this country together. And I think one of the things that we're seeing with the pandemic is that you really, you know, there's no such thing as what happens to this community or what happens over here doesn't affect me. We are all, you know, we're all breathing the same air. We're all using the same resources. We're all, you know, going into the same, we're all um, interconnected. Mm -hmm. Um, But unfortunately, I think that what we have seen is a real reluctance on the part of, in my opinion, the Republican Party to be responsive to some of these really important safety net and well-being issues. You know, let's start with just climate change. You know, we are seeing the devastating impacts of climate change, even with this pandemic, right? A lot of the reason why we see the disparities in some in uh, communities of color is because there's uh, communities of color overrepresented in areas that have high levels of air pollution, mm-hmm. right? You saw yes. this uptick in COVID-19 cases in Michigan. Well, let's not forget that Flint, Michigan suffered through this one of the worst environmental crises when, with the lack of access to clean water, yes. right? And so th- that, those are just that example in climate. But when we look at the states that failed to pass Medicaid uh, expansion in line with the Affordable Care Act, those were primarily Republican-led states, mm-hmm. right? And when we look at the states that have failed to pass paid sick leave, that have failed to pass uh, affordable um, I'm sorry, a living wage. Mm-hmm. Um, these are states that tend to be Republican, right? Of, and so these things are tied together. And so I believe that the best way for us to move forward is we need to get power to political leaders who are going to prioritize these issues and make sure that we don't take our you know eyes off the ball. It's not just important for presidential elections, but we really need to be thinking about what's happening at the uh, local level and especially at the state level, because so much of these policies are directed um, and decided by state legislatures, Mm -hmm. and we have not paid enough attention to who is leading us in our state and making sure that we're holding them accountable for passing the policies that we need to improve our society. I just read a quote from Ken Burns, and Mm -hmm. he said, we have the opportunity here to press a kind of reset button about our values. Yet what is interesting about that quote is there are very different ideas about what 
our collective values are, to your point. You mm-hmm. know, people continue to talk about the polarization, the political polarization of our country. Yet, if you sit down and talk to your neighbors one-on-one, they, I think there's a lot more points of agreement than disagreement as far as basic mm-hmm. human rights in our nation, in our wealthy nation. So I often think about the political will drives change, but it's the public will that's the gasoline in that car. And yeah. without the public will, that car can't get out of the driveway. You know? So yeah. how do you, have you seen in the communities where you've worked, and, and this can be globally as well, based on your experience, mm-hmm. where are those points where people come together and actually have progressive dialogue and are able to listen to each other and, and, in a way, provide an antidote to polarization? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, And I, you know, I think it is a part of the solution is really bringing people together around common values. Because I, you know, even as polarized as um, our country is, I do believe that we have more in common than we do in differences. Mm-hmm. I think that all Americans, you know, not even just Americans, everyone in every country that I've ever been to, we we want to build a good world for our kids. We want to um, make sure that they're educated, make sure that they're safe. Those are things that we share as human beings. And I really do think that a big part of what we need to be doing right now is having those conversations, leading those conversations to gain common understanding. Mm-hmm. And I I want to see that happen in the United States, and I want to see that happen because there are some really great models around the world for, you know, countries that have been able to do this mm-hmm. um, either after major conflicts or after major, you know, racial strife or the things that happen in other countries and people come together and chart a way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to see that happen here. But I, you know, I have to also just be honest that I have not seen much of an attempt at that mm-hmm. in a really meaningful way. And I think it is going to be an important part of how we move forward after this pandemic. I mean, so much of what we're seeing in this response, it's been heartbreaking to me to see just how politicized and polarized it's become, mm-hmm. you know, rather than listening to science and, and actual doctors about advice on, you know, wearing masks and social distancing, it's become mm-hmm. a political uh, issue. Mm-hmm. You know, wearing a mask is seen as something that's political where, where, you know, we've known for, you know, a hundred years that social distancing is how you control a pandemic. Yes. We're seeing other countries like South Korea, New Zealand, going back to, you know, normal life because they've listened to science. And, you know, here we are so paralyzed um, by this toxic political environment Mm -hmm. that, you know, we're literally now at over 100,000 deaths and and rising. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really just sad to me. And I think that a big part of the way we move forward, to your point, is that we do need to come together but that requires leadership, which mm-hmm. unfortunately we don't have that in uh, the federal government right now. But I'm hopeful that that we will find other ways to have leaders in our country bring us together to figure out how we move forward. 
It is heartening to see the leadership that is bubbling up from the streets. Just the kindness that people in the community are showing for each other. I mean, there's also a lot of hot running stress tempers too, but more so I see neighbors helping neighbors and trying to provide support, either emotional support or you know, physical support in the way of shopping for people. And it almost seems like that original thought or idea or fact that we are have we have so many more similarities than we have differences we are finding that now as we are working through this as communities you know neighborhood by neighborhood and so i'm hopeful that that kind of energy and that's the 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 um public will gas that's going to fuel the political will car if we can harness that momentum and keep a conversation going and turn that conversation into policy strategy and then advocacy that would be i think the best outcome that we can have coming out of this devastation yeah i i completely agree with you um and you know i do see it at that neighbor level um, you know, sort of at the community level with people, you know, trying to do the right things and, um, and and really just take care of each other. And I think a lot of the responses that we see with people wearing masks, even when they, you know, feel fine to protect their neighbors, I, I'm encouraged by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that we see more of that um, kind of behavior and that it maybe uh, is uh, a spark or motivation for um, greater action um, by political um, actors at this time. From a from a political perspective, uh, what is that that just regular people can do now to affect change? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think it's hyperbole to say that this is you know, the most important election of our lifetime, you know, literally in the middle of a pandemic and that can decide what direction our country goes in. So obviously the basic thing, uh, making sure that you're voting, making sure that your friends um, and family members are registered to vote and vote. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also would encourage people to um, really just educate themselves on what's happening in their local government and their state government. The issues that we are all talking about, uh, I think, obviously, we want to get leaders who are, you know, at least agree with these policies. But even when we elect, um, you know, when we have elected officials that tend to agree with us, you know, as citizens, it's our job to hold them accountable Mm -hmm. and make sure that we are pushing them to adopt the policies that we need and we know that we need in our community. And so whether that is on climate, whether that is on child care, whether that's on health care, making sure that we're engaged and that we're participating and that we are holding our elected officials accountable for making the changes that we want to see. And if you are inclined to get involved in your you know, local politics, other, you know, being a part of your local, you know, a local political party, or even just being a part of a commission or paying attention to what's happening with your school board. There are a lot of different ways that people can 
get involved and engaged. But the, the, the basic thing that we all should do as citizens is to vote uh, and make sure that our votes count in November, particularly because it will be so challenging to, it will be more challenging, I should say, than normal to make sure that everybody votes uh, in November because of, of uh, being in the middle of the pandemic. It all is so overwhelming right now, yet our political leaders cannot take their hands off the wheel. And as citizens, we can't let them take their hands off the wheel, and we have to make sure that we are holding them accountable. I agree with you. And voting is is so important. I know people talk more and more. As I get older, I hear more and more, you know, oh, my vote doesn't count. It doesn't matter. And I can't tell you in the last, you know, especially decade, how many local races have been won by a hair and how those local races feed into the um, state races, into the federal races. I mean, the local races are the farm team for the higher offices, and each one is just as important. So I completely, completely agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I'd go further than that and say that the local, you know, the local issues and the local, you know, what's happening in your local government and your state government actually have more of an impact on your day-to-day life than what's happening at the federal level. And so, you know, making sure that you're voting not just in presidential years, um, not just during midterm years, but a lot of, you know, local races, for, for instance, mayor races, mayoral races, take place at a different time than presidential or congressional races. Mm-hmm. And those are some of the most important elections that, um, you know, you can be engaged in. And they have abysmally low turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making sure that, you know, when you're, you know, you that you know who's your state house rep or your state senate rep and that you are engaged and know how they are voting on the issues that matter to you because a lot of the policies actually are controlled by the states. And so um, whether you're talking about the environment, whether you're even talking about voting rights, mm-hmm. a lot of those issues are decided at the state level. And so I really, really just encourage people to get more engaged. And if nothing else, make sure that you're voting in every single election that you that, you know that your uh, locality uh, runs. You and I had talked before about representation. Now that we're talking about elections and voting, um, and you had said something really interesting to me that I had never heard. It had to do with, um, I think, almost like a, a, a relative percentage representation in state houses. Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, just to give your listeners some context, um, in 2010, the uh, um, really ran up the score in terms of um, their focus on state legislative uh, bodies and um, targeted and then won a lot of state legislative races um, in places that, you know, just all around the country. The effect of that was that they were able to leverage those wins in 2010 as part of the redistricting process that happens every 10 years based on the census. And by the way, a similar process is happening this year in 2020. And so the effect of that over time is that you have so 55, roughly 55 percent 
of uh, Black Americans in states that are controlled by Republican governors and uh, a Republican state legislature. And that comes, you know, that translates to policies that are, you know, like I said, not passing Medicaid expansion, Mm -hmm. not having paid sick leave, um, restricted voting rights, right? Mm -hmm. And so a big part of the solution moving forward is really a focus on those state legislatures Mm -hmm. because there is so much policy that's decided there. Mm -hmm. And also because this is an important year, you know, we'll be going through the redistricting process again and making sure that um, you don't just have one party controlling the redistricting process and gerrymandering them, you know, their way so that they hold power because once that happens, they no longer have to be responsive to what the people want. I cannot state more, you know, emphatically, more, you know, urgently how important it is that um, that the state legislatures and in places like North Carolina and Minnesota, Arizona, so many of these states where we have important state legislative races, but are also important for all number of reasons, including the presidential race, that folks are turning out and voting because it does translate to real policy differences in their lives. Akuna, it's been a pleasure to have you on my show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jennifer. It was a pleasure to be here to talk with you today. You have been listening to Genderator. As always, you are welcome to comment on my website at www.genderator.com. That's Genderator with a J. And please, make sure you get out and vote.